Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to CFRC 101.9 FM, broadcasting from Lower Carothers Hall on Queen's campus in Kingston, Ontario. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, and you're listening to Kingston Currents. CFRC's news programming is brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the local journalism initiative, Queen's University Career Services, What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street, and the Screening Room at ScreeningRoomKingston.com. In today's episode, we'll be getting into two films being screened at this year's Kingston Canadian Film Festival, featuring interviews with both directors. The 2024 Kingston Canadian Film Festival kicked off yesterday and is the largest standalone showcase of feature films from across Canada. Dark Highway, a documentary on human trafficking in Ontario, will be premiering tonight at the Kingston Canadian Film Festival. In her first long-form documentary feature, Kingston director Anna Jane Edmonds uses first-hand accounts of survivors, community organizers, and others to shed light on the experiences of many women and children along Ontario's busy corridors. She reveals how the 401, the busiest highway in North America, is a seldom-acknowledged scene of this crime. While audiences will be confronted with the horrifying reality of this pervasive crime, Edmonds also arms viewers with crucial knowledge and instills hope for a better future. I sat down with Edmonds and survivor leader Kelly Franklin, who participated in the film, to discuss the important documentary and its showing at KCFF. I was wondering what encouraged you to delve into this topic specifically. Totally. So this is, it's actually my first entry into the feature length doc space. I, mm-hmm. I come from a scripted and a short doc background. And so what sort of launched me into this was there was another production company that had come across articles about human trafficking in Ontario and they sort of started the development of a project and had reached out to me simply to do the research and uh, when I came on board I came in completely blind as Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was getting into I, I sort of started the research and as I started to learn and and develop an idea of what I thought would be an interesting way of approaching a topic like this, I went back to the production house and said, what if this film was actually told through the the voice of a bystander instead of someone who has existed through the crime? What if, what if we approach it as if I have no idea? I, I, I am a nobody and I'm also an everybody and I, I drive this highway all the time. And so I, I'd approach it like that. And, the other production company was very supportive and said, that's great. Why don't you take it and run? And we came at it actually as a short film because in the development that this other team had, uh, they had a different vision for it. And they had gone through a lot of the usual Canadian filmmaking processes to bring it to life. And they found some stalls along the way within that. And so we said, why don't we do a short to to really bring forward the fact that this is a topic worth discussing. and It is a topic mm-hmm. worth bringing forward to audiences. And then as myself and my co-producer and editor, Gina, sort of launched into the production of it, we were gifted the opportunity very humbly into environments that we didn't realize we would be welcome into. And we got hours and hours of interviews and footage. And when we sat in the edit room, we just couldn't find a way to truly honor what we had learned in less than 60 minutes. So that's sort of how we got to the feature length component. And to add on to that, to what your original question was, is, you know, where did Kelly come into all of this? Kelly was one of the first survivor experiential leaders I was introduced to when I started the research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all topics where the person leading the narrative and the research, when you're not a part of something, I have no direct involvement. I am not 
someone who's been affected by the crime in my personal life or my family life. And so I can't do this alone. I couldn't do it alone. I needed the guidance of somebody that not only could speak to all the statistics and what's happening within the government and what's happening not only in Ontario, but nationally and globally, I needed a, a confidant that I could call and say, what am I looking at? Are these, are these the people who can really bring forward the information that will be authentic to what's actually happening? And, you know, I, Kelly and I have become incredible collaborators because I, I really needed someone who had the insight to the side that really is happening in a way that I would never see as a common person. Mm, definitely. And thank you for all that background on the film there. And Kelly, what did you think when AJ approached you to participate in this film? Uh, first, I thought if she's going to uh, do a movie about something called Dark Highway, she needs to put her seatbelt on and and get ready for the the quick course on anti-human trafficking from the lens of survivors. And just the fact that she was both herself and Gina were willing to come in and say, we don't know about this. We've heard about this. It needs the attention. Um, they allowed us uh, to say what we as survivors often don't want to say. Uh, we don't, we don't want to have to keep speaking this stuff, especially when nobody's listening. Um, and most of the public don't want to hear, want to hear what we have to say, although they need to. And so with AJ's understanding of this and her complete transparency uh, to put a, a set of outsider eyes to be an upstander in this, actually to be willing to listen, to be completely transparent, to use ethics in her treatment and engagement of survivors and our content um, to ensure that uh, she she was a quick study about what ethical engagement with survivors look like, because there are tons of filmmakers out there that aren't, mm -hmm. uh, that have in the past tokenized our stories or owned them for a Tim Hortons card. <laughs> and so um, I was able to just provide um, some support to say, before you step in the weeds, you know, while you're swimming in these dark waters of filmmaking in an arena that's very difficult, um, let me know because we can work together on this and make sure we protect the project, uh, protect your integrity as a filmmaker and journey and learn together. So I've learned a ton as well. Um, that's been really beneficial. We become friends. You, you don't go through this, like this was a three-year project and like, you know, before we're on call, before we're on call today to talk to you, we're talking today and we're talking about what the next issues are that we need to be talking to the public, the government, everybody else about. And so there are so many tentacles to this and the credit and the respect for the way that this doc came out is to allow those eyes of AJ to tell the story in, in a relatable way to an audience who are going to be looking from that same purview. The people in the audience, the majority of them are not going to be survivors or stakeholders or industry engaged people in this arena. They're going to be the public. And so that's why it is absolutely vital that the second showing on this sells out, that mm -hmm. every person in every community that hears your piece brings this into their film festival and make sure that the breadth 
of the message of this and the outlying message is kids are not for sale across our highways. And this isn't just an Ontario issue. The corridors are across Canada. We just selected Ontario because it has the highest rate of human trafficking of any province. And the minors that are trafficked in Canada, 60% of all the trafficking that is initiated in Canada happens in Ontario. So AJ's willing to ask the question, why? You know, that's one of the things that this film does is it is it ask the question, why? Because we cannot tell people what to do unless we tell you why. So huge respect. Um, and we are speaking truth. And it's very difficult because even as those with lived experience will be part of this incredible, like the cinematography is high level. Everything in this is high level. And it's just been a labor of love uh, from AJ and her colleagues. And just kudos to all the survivors and the others in the cast that we're not actors. These are our lives. And we've been respected in a way that we're not used to. Oh, well, that's great to hear. Yeah, definitely. And something that you both got into in your answers there was the, and I think was reflected just in the trailer right off the bat, was the focus on perspectives and voices of victims of the crime. I was wondering um, if you could speak to the importance of centering these voices in your film and both of your experiences sitting down and having these conversations. Absolutely. I think when I went into the development of how I would want a movie like this to go, I thought about the kind of things that I like to watch. And, you know, we, we exist in a world where I think we really, we get a lot of some sort of satisfaction, I think, in, in watching how crimes unfold. And I personally, as someone that watches a lot of stuff, I'm fascinated by the facts. I'm fascinated by what is really, what's behind what we know when we read headlines and sound bites. Like where, where are the real impacted individuals in the big picture of all of this? And, you know, I, I went into it thinking that this was a doc about the stats and, and about, yes, there are survivors of the crime and they're few and far between, and it'll take me forever to find individuals who might want to come forward. And I, I have to say that that wasn't the case. This is a, this is a very pervasive and present crime within all of our communities. And, you know, the intention of putting it across the highway and I, and I will credit, you know, uh, Ballinran, the original production company, that was sort of their through line was there is a, let's look at the highway as something that bystanders, we're all on the highway. We all touch the highway. We have to, if you live in Ontario, you have to get on it to go almost anywhere, unless you're dedicating yourself to highway seven or highway two for a long a weekend drive, you know, like it's a, it's a touch point that we could all look at and say, I'm there as an everyday citizen and I'm passing people that are affected by this crime. And so when it came to finding individuals to be interviewed, uh, I have to say, you know, with sort of a heavy heart, with a lot of humility and, and graciousness that I was welcoming to these spaces, but with a heavy heart, there are a lot of people that sort of came out of the woodwork and said, I've been affected. I live this every day or someone in my, my child survived this. And in some cases, my child did not survive this. And so it's, it is everywhere. And so that wasn't something I struggled with, which is why Kelly was such an incredible teammate in this, because I could say, I, I am being, you know, reached out to by these individuals. How can I talk to these survivors and these families of survivors and these advocates 
in a way that is protecting their lived experiences. So nobody here feels like a filmmaker is exploiting them for something they survived. And so that was a big part of this as well, was finding a balancing point to ensure that, you know, we're, we're getting things that I can bring back to an audience, but I'm also not taking something from an individual that will leave them in a, in a more challenging place than I, I was invited in to see. And so within that, you know, the interview process, I catered it to each person I was speaking to. If they wanted me within their home, we would go there. If we found a neutral place that was somewhere that either they work or it was, you know, a family member of theirs that wanted to host it in their space, myself and Gina and our team were very flexible, which is of course why this takes a little bit more time because we wanted to not only develop the relationships, but find a comfortable place and dedicate not like a couple hours in a day, but like open the day up so that we would talk, we would, you know, take a break, go for a walk, shoot some B-roll, shake off the, the morning and then come back to it. So for every person that came forward and, and when people watch the doc, uh, I'm very proud to say that we have a, a range of, of individuals and lived experiences. And also we have um, Dr. Jackie Linder, who, who works uh, pretty tirelessly in the middle of the country, and she could speak to the psychology side of it, which when we went into this, I, I, I know what it's like to be the average person. And, and we, we do like to hold on to things that we can like grab the sound bites and understand. And so we look to doctors to localize things for us. So I worked to the best of my ability to balance people that have the long list of accreditations at the end of their name and also put what they're saying in context with what the lived experience truly is to not only validate the lived experience because it is true and it is real but give people the chance to say okay it's not just survivors saying this we have others out there that are also leaning in going we have to look beyond our headlines we have to look beyond what we see in the media Absolutely. and really ask these questions yeah definitely and kelly did you have anything on again the importance and uh, also your experience well, one of the things was important to us that in 2019, as our organization Courage for Freedom, working with a 16-year-old survivor, we just came a, a, upon some truths that just weren't getting the community. And I think that touch point for us and AJ kind of vetting us and seeing what we'd done with Project En Route, we started the corridor conversation in 2019 in Ontario to kind of say, hey, people, wake up and mm -hmm. brought the voices of survivors forward started campaigns and did the work, but being unfunded, um, we, we are not filmmakers. And so to have somebody uptick this and say, Hey, we're going to carry this forward. We understand what you're trying to get out to the public. Um, that the partnership between us, you know, I don't know anything about cinematography, especially when it came from somebody showing up in my barn who was savvy enough to wear, you know, a hat and some mitts and barn boots and meet a horse that helps girls heal. You know, the reality that somebody would do that, um, let me know that the capacity of the filmmaker was going to be um, representationally ethical. And so that was one of the most important things. And I can say, you know, I work in the arenas of like gangs and guns training, <laughs> Um, everything from frontline to just helping social workers or moms and dads or community people to know what to do. But everything that um, that AJ and her team were willing 
to <laughs> roll the dice on and really do a good job uh, because they could have popularized this up or politicized this up in other ways. And they refused to do that. They decided that they were going to have integrity in this project. They have integrity in people. So to be able to put this together and look at the final product, the big thing was holding our breath to say, now, how do we get this to the public? Because this, <laughs> we have been championed by a bystander who's now an upstander. Like AJ is one of the people I'll call and say, how do we roll this? Um, you know, and and be able to to start to dream about the next steps and, and what do we do from here? Because it's not enough to sound an alarm without sending <laughs> the response teams. And really one of the goals of this project was to get truth out to people without scaring them because fear-based information does not inspire people to get involved. But when we tell people the reality of it and having worked in Kingston with the OPP there, with the RCMP there, with your victim services there, um, and with AJ. <laughs> Having done the work in that community, um, we know more than we're ever going to disclose in this movie that if people want to source to go past this, we believe people can become the red light cameras in their own community in a very positive, safe way. And that is the goal of this film is that people will get involved and learn that they can be a bystander who becomes an upstander just through AJ's story of the journey of filmmaking. If I can just actually, Kelly said something that I would love to just add to, which is during not only the interview phase, but also in the editing, Gina and I were exceptionally aware that what we did not want to do was give so much information that people would throw their blinders up. We live in an oversaturated world with so much information, so much coming at us at all once, all at once. What was really important to me was offering audiences pieces that they can walk away from and say, I can use that. That's a that's an element that I can walk away from. Whether it's the section on the film that talks about the legal system, whether it's the section on the film that talks about the impact of social media and how memes and emojis are being used, yeah. or whether it's just you know paying attention if you're a teacher and there's someone within your high school that maybe you want to talk to an outside organization or, or however it works. We work really hard to not fear monger within this Absolutely. and keep it as factual, but also moving. And um, we're, we really hope that that's something that we've accomplished for people that watch it. Yeah, definitely. Those are awesome takeaways for the audiences as opposed to just walking away like, wow, the world is so scary and horrible. <laughs> but walking away is yeah. something that they can do or something or just knowing more about this topic, which is really important in itself. I mean, a lot of people don't know much about this topic. Um, was there something that really stood out to you where you thought, oh, my gosh, everyone needs to know this or is something that really surprised you during this process? From the moment you Google human trafficking in Canada, average age. I mean, it will shock anyone. And I, I think when I went into this, I was thinking about how audiences interpret information. I was also thinking about how average citizens in interpret crime facts. And I said, we can all sit at a table together and say, we have to protect our kids. Yep. We, we have mm -hmm. a responsibility as adults living in, in a democracy and a, a very globalized and universalized world. But we have a responsibility to protect the children in our lives. And unfortunately, we are not 
doing an excellent job across the board. There are, are a lot of kids, the average age is 13, 14. And then for indigenous children, it's eight for the luring and the grooming to begin. That statistic alone totally shook me to my core. But from from there, it's also recognizing where can we really lean in and have a serious conversation about how we can help. And that actually really seems to be on the, the point of exit when it comes to the aftercare for people who have exited and are now living in a new phase of, of being in a survivor space and how the average citizen really should be looking at what is the aftercare? What is our legal system doing to not only protect, but also be, you know, once we read about legal stuff, we start looking at, well, why did we get to this point? And then we go back to the prevention component. And so I, I have to say the beginning piece really shocks me. The fact it happens floored me. It, you know, gave me all of the stomach churns that anyone that wants to protect the kids in my life would get. But as a tax paying voting citizen, I was actually most shocked and, and most probably most shaken by the process of what happens after survivors exit. Mm-hmm. And and if if you have the opportunity to see the film, we only focus on how it happens for the first 15 minutes. And then we really start focusing on where are the tangible places that we can step in and have an impact on this crime once it's happened. So I think that that was definitely the biggest shock to me was the the exit and post care. And lack there lack thereof. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Kelly, would you like to speak to that a bit? Just those those pieces that you think will really stand yeah. out to people? Well, and and I credit AJ that she was willing to ask the questions as we're going down the journey. And I'd say, yeah, that that was a big announcement about this money, but the parameters around it don't match what the survivors are going through in order to be assisted in exiting, whether they're minors or adults, that if you are promising that there's a victim witness money available and you have to report in 12 months of the crime, And um, we know from statistics that children's trafficking, or as I call it, child rape, um, actually, there's no such thing as child prostitution, by the way, it's child rape under our legal system, that actually it takes parents up to two years to know what's going on. So if the parameters around getting care, resources, uh, uh, money for PTSD, anxiety, help and support with housing, all of it, all that comes with it is within 12 months of reporting. The crime has to happen within 12 months of reporting. Why are we bothering? Because out of the 850 young people that I've worked with, none of them have reported in that 12-month window. The other thing is we're expecting them wait 18 months to go to court. And the money that we're giving them for psychological support and care equates to about three months. So we're expecting them to become witnesses and to stand and and to protect us in society when we have failed them. We have failed them societally to keep them from harm. And now we're expecting them to become our witnesses. So we see what happens in police circles, in the courts, uh, in social service circles. Like shelters are expected to be the be all and the end all to also just tack on to all the other programs for women and girls, anti-human trafficking without a unilateral approach to it. And so AJ has been privy 
to my phone calls and text of, we have another girl, there's systems lacking. I just need to fundraise $2,500 to make sure she has secure rent and she doesn't go back into sex industry because we can't wait for the systems processes and also the harm that's caused, the, the trauma that's caused in court because they're not treated as a different type of witness and they need to be. And so we have a lot of structural stuff that AJ and I are playing around with questions that maybe the community doesn't need to be entangled in right now, but that in the future, staying connected to this project, staying connected to Courage for Freedom and other outlying agencies that are survivor-led, not just the big box stores, to find out what are the solutions that we can hand the community that are the easy wins. Like, here's a letter write your parliamentarians. Here's an issue, raise the money for this right now. You know, we want to make it simple and safe. And this film does that. And the film will go beyond this. Like this is a to be continued conversationally because the buzz that people should take away from this, and I'm not, it's not a spoiler alert, but I have two things that were vitally important to me in this movie. I had worked with a 12-year-old um, who is now 19, and at 12 years of age, she had disclosed in a soundbite that the person that bought her knew she was a child, and that struck AJ, and then AJ found out the youngest survivor I'd worked with was four, and so when we start to understand these are children, we would not expect kids to go to school, take an educational piece on how to cross the road and shove them out into traffic. So this cannot be a child issue only to educate kids and youth to keep themselves safe. We know from the psychology that their brains cannot mitigate that risk until they're fully formed at 24 to 26. So instead of shoving them out into communities where there's potential perpetrators of trafficking, just look and scoop them, not in a white van, but psychologically, then why aren't we hand-holding and making sure we're the good adults in community? And by AJ and her team creating a movie for adults to go and see, they become the community partners that we have been waiting for since I was trafficked in the 80s. Edmonds and Franklin also spoke to the film spot and KCFF's lineup. The first showing is sold out, which is amazing. Congratulations on that. That's thank you. So good to hear. And then second showing, I'm sure, is going fast. Um, how do you feel about this project premiering? Um, I believe it's is it your hometown in Kingston, AJ? It is. It's my hometown. I was born and raised in Kingston. I was born at Kingston General Hospital. I went to LCVI for high school. And so I the serendipity of being able to bring a movie that I've been working for three years on to my hometown is almost surreal I couldn't be more excited you know not not just because I still have almost my entire family that's there so they're all able to come and be a part of the celebration of it but also because I speak directly to what it's like to grow up in a place that's like Kingston and you know I I spent my whole life on the 401 because it crosses right through all the places you want to go when you're a kid in Kingston and so I think not only as an excited Kingstonian, uh, am I thrilled to be able to be at the Kingston Canadian Film Festival, but also it's my hometown. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it speaks to the fact that it's, this crime is everywhere, even in the places that we feel it couldn't be. So you know, I am absolutely thrilled. 
Kelly also stressed the importance of those in smaller communities in the Kingston area familiarizing themselves with this topic. The 401 is the gateway into those feeder fish communities. So we're not precluding the smaller communities outside of Kingston. They need to be well aware that they are intersectional. They they inter their lives intersect with the 401, as AJ said. Those smaller bedroom ag rural communities surrounding are also at risk and need to be well educated. While tonight's premiere is sold out, there are still tickets available for the showing on Sunday, March 3rd at the Baby Grand at kingcanfilmfest.com. Before we get into more from KCFF, I'm turning to our weather and traffic report for this morning. For your weather report today, we're expecting a mix of sun and cloud. Winds will be 30 kilometers per hour, gusting to 50. We have a high of minus 4, wind chill minus 20 this morning, and minus 10 this afternoon. The UV index is 2 or low. Later on tonight, we're expecting increasing cloudiness. Winds will be 20 kilometers per hour, becoming light this evening. We have a low of minus 6, wind chill minus 13 this evening, and minus 8 overnight. Now it's time for your CFRC weekly traffic report. Reduced load restrictions are in effect in Kingston as of February 26th. Heavy trucks and loads are restricted on city roads where posted. These restrictions help reduce damage to roads in the spring. PSPC wishes to advise motorists of an alternating lane closure on LaSalle Causeway for major rehabilitation until April. During this period, one lane will be closed and one lane will remain open for alternating traffic. Motorists should expect short delays. Access will be maintained for pedestrians and cyclists. PSPC encourages users to exercise caution when traveling over the bridge and thanks them for their patience. In road closures, University Avenue Union to Earl is closed until the end of May for the Queen's JDOC project. In parking disruptions, the Hanson Memorial Parking Structure Restoration Project is now underway. The work will take place throughout all levels of the building and will include efforts such as routine structural maintenance, repainting, replacement of waterproofing materials, and upgrades to the building's electrical and mechanical systems. The work is planned to end in late December 2024. The work will be completed in phases to allow the building to remain open to public parking for the duration of the project. It is anticipated that no more than 50% of the available 271 parking spaces will be closed at any time. There is also parking availability at the Chown Memorial and Robert Bruce Memorial parking garages in the two adjacent blocks to the west. In other delays, Queen Street, Montreal to Sydenham expect an eastbound lane closure until April 1st, 2024. Detours will be in place for the duration of the closure. Now back to more news from the Kingston Canadian Film Festival. One of the films being screened will be Jeremy Larder's Who's Your Father, an East Coast comedy with a local connection, as Larder is now a resident of Prince Edward County. The Maritimer mystery centers around Larry, a private investigator who ends up in the middle of a case involving compromising photos, blackmail, and black market lobster. I sat down with Larder to chat about the film and KCFF. Um, just to get us started, if you'd like to give a brief description of the film and what people can expect when they go see it at KCFF this year. 
Yeah, so the the film is called Who's Your Father? It's a comedy caper about a bumbling private investigator in Prince Edward Island, which is where I was born and raised, mm-hmm. uh, played by Chris Locke, um, who is hired to investigate black market lobster sales by a rich seafood tycoon. And while he's working that case, he meets Rhonda Perry, who's a local convenience store owner, who's trying to manifest a soft serve ice cream machine for her store. And uh, when Larry meets Rhonda, he kind of falls for her instantly. And Rhonda sort of sees Larry as a way to kind of get to her ice cream machine dreams. And the two of them kind of get way in over their heads. Um, and the film is kind of like a screwball comedy in a film noir mixed together in a blender. Um, so it's got a lot of like film noir tropes in it, kind of a playful uh, film noir a- aspect to it. And also it's just a really fun and sweet romantic movie as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like PEI is the perfect setting. I'm also from out east, and I feel like everyone knows everyone, and everyone's a character. <laughs> so it's yeah, definitely absolutely. the perfect setting. Also, I mean, you mentioned you're from PEI, so I imagine that heavily factored into your inspiration behind this film. Just, you know, stories from growing up and everything. I was wondering if you could get into specifically how Who's Your Father came together, how long it had been in the works before. Yeah, so Who's Your Father... Um... The first incarnation of the script probably goes back to like 2015 or so when I was still in the middle of making a, a comedy web series called Just Passing Through. Um, that was kind of like a cult comedy uh, series in Canada for a while. So I kind of wrote a draft of the script then and then I put it away for a while, for a few years. And I made another film called Pogi Beach, um, which was a spinoff of Just Passing Through. And then I picked it up again during the pandemic in 2020. And this time, at first, it was just kind of like a very straight film noir script. And then it kind of became more of a screwball comedy as I was writing it. And actually, I had met Susan Kent um, from Trailer Park Boys in This Hour's 22 Minutes on another PEI project a few years prior. And I was really inspired by how brilliant she was uh, watching her work on that, that series called Wharf Rat. So... I basically started writing that Rhonda Perry character for Susan um, in 2020. Um, And then I took it to my producing partners, Jason Arsenault and Jenna McMillan, who uh, are both from PEI as well. And then we had applied to Telfilm for production funding in 2021. So, you know, going back, you know, it's a long ways from the first draft of the script, but since I started kind of working on it again, the second time it, it was a fairly fast, um, for a film, for Canadian film, for fairly fast transition from script to funding to production to release of the movie. Just about three years. Um, so, yeah, the movie's also filled with, like, tons of stuff from my life growing up in PEI. I worked on a wharf um, mm-hmm. on the island just about 10 minutes from where I grew up. I played golf there as a kid. Um, a lot of the locations are within, like, a five-minute drive of my parents' house <laughs> where I grew up. <laughs> and some of them are actually next door to my parents' house. Um, so a lot of it of the North shore community that I grew up in is, is kind of infused in the movie. Yeah, definitely. And how was filming? I mean, the weather in the trailer looked beautiful. It looked like such a beautiful place to shoot. And it also just sounded like he had a fun cast. It sounded like a good vibe on set. Oh yeah, it was, it was, Mm -hmm. it was a ball. I I loved working with, um, with the cast. Like the cast is incredible. Chris and Susan together just have this magical chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of why, why they were cast together because they just, they're both brilliant, smart, funny people and also storytellers in their own right. So they were just a lot of fun to work with and they got along great. Um, and then Jess Salguero and uh, Cagnetio Horn 
in it from Letterkenny and uh, Jesses and Fraser. So there was just like an incredible cast. It was beautiful. We got very lucky with weather and a lot of the, half of this movie is outside, um, <laughs> which is always a gamble in the shooting on the East coast in summertime, even um, that you're going to get really beautiful days, but we did luckily. So yeah, it was just a lot of fun and um, production is very short. It only had, you know, it's years before and years after usually, and the production only takes about a month. So I always try to enjoy mm -hmm. The producing uh the production part of it as much as possible yeah definitely and describing that and also i just like to ask you have any favorite memories from when you were behind the scenes oh geez yeah i mean every day there weren't very many easy scenes to shoot in this movie there was always some sort of a complication whether it was like vehicles or night scenes or ice cream cones i mean we shot there's a scene with chris and susan at a, at a like a beautiful neon uh dairy bar at night um and they were eating ice cream in the scene and uh that was kind of, because they were just losing it i mean because the ice cream had to be brought in for a new one for every take and uh chris and susan were just like eating so much ice cream it was insane um <laughs> soft serve ice cream and then they were just kind of cracking up chris was sort of making susan laugh by kind of getting ice cream all over his face while he's doing the scene um and she just couldn't she couldn't hold it together um, but that was a, that was a fun one. Um, and another night that we were shooting next door to my parents' house at night, we were shooting the, like this burial scene, and uh, there was a vehicle involved. And my dad actually came out and told us to quiet down. <laughs> so that was to keep You're it like, down. Oh my gosh, there. it's like I'm back. After. Yeah, it's like I'm I'm 16 years old again, and and uh -huh. you know playing music too loud in my parent in my bedroom or something. Um, so that was that was a fun fun memory. But it was it was honestly it was just a kind of a joyful experience which is what you kind of hope for and want when you're making a comedy because you want that good feeling to carry through in the movie yeah definitely i feel like whatever's happening behind the scenes definitely bleeds through on film so i'm glad it was such a good energy behind the scenes um and this is not the first time this film has been screened and opened at atlantic international film festival and is now on paramount plus as well which is really exciting how has the audience reaction been so far Oh, it's been incredible. It, more than I could have ever hoped for. Um, we had a great premiere in Halifax and then it's played, it was re released theatrically after that as well. And Chris and Susan and I and, and producer Jenna McMillan toured the movie around to different cities on the East Coast, um, which was an incredible experience. I feel very lucky and fortunate to have done that. And because we got to meet so many really fun, great people on the road who were really into the movie. And I've seen the movie now in probably half a dozen places or more. And it's fun to see how the audience reacts in the same way from city to city. It little There's little differences. Like, mm -hmm. for instance, people in PEI might react a little bit differently to certain things than people in Toronto. But mm -hmm. uh, overall, like the movie, the response from the audience is very similar, which is kind of a gratifying feeling to, to know that the movie seems like it works and, and people are really into it. And I think the thing that, besides the laughs, which... Kind of happened from start to finish it's people seem to get really invested in the characters more so than i thought they would um i hope they would but but they seem to be very invested in the characters and larry and Rhonda's story which is really fun and and um interesting to see how much they really care about them by the end of the movie um you know like there's a couple of screenings we had people actually like yelling at the screen <laughs> at certain moments <laughs> <laughs> like when the villain like some villainous characters are doing some bad things and people are like no don't do it um which is really fun uh we, we, yeah so, I, so people just get really engaged with it so i've been really happy and i'm really really thrilled to be able to watch the movie in kingston and see and, and and feel that kingston crowd and see how they they react to it especially with the comedy because 
it's a real communal experience and, and watching comedy together is I think the best way to watch a comedy. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree there. And I'm surprised you said the reaction was really similar. I was curious, like if maybe the East coast audiences had any difference from like Ontario or just in little ways, like, like the, mm -hmm. the, the, the big moments all seem to get a very similar reaction, but like, yeah. yes, there'll be like people from PEI uh, for sure. There'll be certain East coast things that will hit Islanders more or hit uh, Maritimers more um, little nuances of, of, but I also find that uh, people who aren't from the East coast or don't have a connection to the East coast also get a real kick out of mm -hmm. some of the Atlantic Canadian expressions. And there's a lot of like, there's lingo from the East coast throughout um, that they probably haven't heard those expressions before. So they get like a really fun, like new reaction to it. Um, like just like, yeah, some expressions that East coasters might take for granted, but people from Ontario haven't heard before. So that, so that like, there are different little nuances between the crowd reaction, uh, for sure. But the big moments kind of get a very similar reaction. Definitely. Well, looking forward to have a Kingston audience watch. Well, I've heard great things. I, I've heard so many great things about Kingston, like uh, from people who I have friends who go to the screening room a lot and mm -hmm. uh, and people who've been connected to like to the arts community there. And and being someone who's just down, down the road from Kingston now, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really excited to to be there and uh, and get to meet some people from from Kingston. Awesome. Yeah, it's true. Kingstonians love their films. I'm very excited for the screening. So the first screening on March 1st is sold out. And the second one, tickets are going quick. How are you feeling walking into KCFF next week? Oh, I mean, I'm feeling great. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I love Q&As. I mean, I really love mm -hmm. Q&As. And um, you just never know what people are going to ask. Every single Q&A has had different questions that I have never would never expect. Um, so I'm really excited to be there in Kingston. Um, a, a film festival crowd is a different type of crowd, too. Like, there's, there's a lot of cinephiles and and um in film buffs so I, i'm and i think this is a real film buffs movie too because it's an interesting mix of genres so i'm really i'm really excited for the screening in uh in kingston awesome yeah definitely i was gonna say definitely a mix of genres we got comedy i would argue crime drama you don't mess with maritimers lobster <laughs> no like... you don't no absolutely <laughs> but no you're right you don't mess with the maritimers lobster at all and, and so in the music i have to say that the mm -hmm. the the soundtrack for the film is incredible. Almost all Canadian artists. Um, wow. The band, band Zeus is some a band that some people might know. Michael Rolt. Mm -hmm. It's just got a great uh, Canadian indie soundtrack. And there's a lot of food in this movie. And a, and a seafood chowder mm -hmm. recipe that is pretty second to none. So if you're into seafood chowder, you might want to just bring a pen and paper to the screening and write down this chowder recipe. Okay, noted. That's that's your tidbit. Bring your pen and paper and get ready to get that recipe. Awesome stuff. Anyone who doesn't like food and music, then I don't know what yeah. you So if you don't like food and music and love and romance and funny shenanigans, then yeah, it's probably not for you. But if you like any of those things, I think it's the right movie. Awesome stuff. And um, I mean, of course, you're probably all wrapped up in all the screenings of this movie and it being out on Paramount Plus and all these this big news. But what's next for you? Well, um, now, uh, you know, we're, the movie's still going and we're still promoting that, but I'm, I'm working on a few other scripts. So I'm trying to write my next feature right now. So I've got a few different things that I'm developing. And, uh, you know, because of how long it takes, like if, if I work fast now, then maybe my next film will be done and ready in three years, hopefully. So, so which feels like a long way down the road. So I, I'm trying to, to write as, as well and as quickly as I can to get the next one going. 
Once again, that was Jeremy Lerner on his film, Who's Your Father?, which will be screening at KCFF this weekend. Both screenings at the festival this weekend are sold out, but the film is also available to watch on Paramount+. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming, brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University Career Services, What Will I Wear at 732 Princess Street, and The Screening Room at ScreeningRoomKingston.com. Stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next. What Will I Wear offers the best in vintage, funky, one-of-a-kind treasures, clothing, accessories, and a fabulous selection of jewels, vintage and new. Find the cutest purse, the most dashing of hats and sunglasses, everything to complete your individual look. What Will I Wear has it all. They can dress you from top to bottom. Find your new fashion fave at What Will I Wear at 732 Princess Street in Kingston. Visit their new location and follow them on Facebook to keep up to date with what's in store at What Will I Wear.